From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. If you've ever faced surgery, you know that one of the important members of the operating team is the person in charge of the anesthesia. With me today to talk about what to expect and how to prepare for anesthesia is Dr. Srinivas Toda, an assistant professor of anesthesiology at Upstate. Thank you for being here. Thank you for welcoming me. <laughs> well, let's start with what is the overall goal of anesthesia? Is it pain relief? Is it amnesia? Is it comfort? What, what's the goal of anesthesia? Well, generally speaking, the aim is all of them together as much as possible. And when a common person mentions anesthesia, they are generally talking about general anesthesia. And when we say general anesthesia, it's, it's broadly defined as basically a drug-induced reversible depression of the central nervous system, that is the brain and the spinal cord, resulting in a loss of response to and perception of external stimuli. So as you mentioned, the components of anesthetic state does include unconsciousness, amnesia means loss of memory. So you don't remember? Yes, so that we don't remember of the events around the time of the surgery. Analgesia means inability to appreciate pain, which is good. Okay. <laughs> and to some extent, immobility. Okay. And then um, you mentioned general anesthesia. That's only one, one. type of anesthesia, right? And, yes. And general would be... When the person is totally unconscious, unconscious and he doesn't know what he or she doesn't know what's going on and they're immobile and they don't feel anything at all. Okay. What are some of the other types of anesthesia? So, so starting from simple local anesthesia, that usually involves one or a couple of injections around the operative site. It usually involves uh, like um, doing surgery for a a small skin mole or a skin cancer where we inject this local anesthetic medication and the area becomes numb and they go ahead and do the procedure. Surgeons do go ahead and do the procedure. And uh, So the surgeon can do his or her work without the patient feeling all the of pain. the pain. Yeah. Okay. When, when we do local anesthetic, this, the patient, we do tell the patients that they will be feeling the procedure, but it shouldn't hurt. Okay. They are mostly awake. We give them some medications to calm them down but they are mostly awake. Okay. That's local anesthetic. Next comes regional anesthesia. Now, this is a little bit more involved. The physician anesthesiologist, what he does is uh, he or she will uh, look at the nerves supplying the major parts of the body, like limbs, upper limbs, lower limbs, and inject, uh, um, use the ultrasound machine to look at those nerves and inject local anesthetics around these nerves, nerves so that the limb becomes numb. And okay. the surgeons can go ahead and safely do the surgery. These are done under sterile aseptic conditions in the operating room usually. Okay. Uh, yeah. Sometimes we do inject local anesthetics and combination of medications into the back, or the, like spinal or epidural. And you might have heard of that. Epidural um, is commonly used for a, a woman during childbirth. Oh, sure. Okay. okay. All right. And then um, intravenous sedation? Intravenous sedation is another type. It's also call, commonly called monitored anesthesia care. The medications, the intravenous medications are given. This, these sedations can be very light sedation. Um, to one end, the other end of the spectrum is deep sedation. We can, we, when I say we, it's the anesthesiologist can uh, deepen the level of sedation. Uh, so you can adjust it during the procedure if you need to? Yes, we can adjust the, the medications um, according to the procedure. Like for colonoscopy, we give minimal sedation so that the patient doesn't remember much. But sometimes we can go deeper sedation if they are going, going to do some procedures during the colonoscopy. We can increase the level of medications ah. that we can give. So usually at the end of the procedure, the patient does not remember much about the procedure. 
So who picks what kind of anesthesia? Does the patient have a say in what kind of anesthesia they're going to get, or does it is it dictated by the procedure they're having? Patients do have a say, but then it also depends on the procedure and what, what the proceduralist wants. But the patients do have a, a, a role to play. They can choose, but there are certain conditions that cannot be done under sedation. People have to go for general or regional okay. anesthesia. Okay. Well, um, patients typically have a preoperative anesthesia assessment if their surgery is planned, mm-hmm. um, where they come in a few days before or something. What, what, is, what does that consist of, and what is it looking for when you do well, that? Well, that's a good question. So most patients who are having an elective surgery, a planned surgery, we recommend that they see the preoperative anesthesia assessment clinic, uh, a physician anesthesiologist or a nurse anesthetist or a nurse over there who's trained in pre-op assessment. Uh, um, They see the patient go through the entire physical and history and physical, go through the whole medication list and if required, they will go through, uh, ask for special investigations if needed. They have, we go through the whole system, the cardiac, the heart, the lung, the, the endocrine system. And if there are any medications that need to be altered, um, um, we optimize the patients and also give them a set of instructions to be followed for the day before the surgery. And we give them in, um, instructions for the day of surgery so that the, um, um, the whole experience is uh, smooth, un- uneventful. So there's no surprises when exactly. they get there. So are you basically trying to make sure they're healthy enough to have surgery and to have anesthesia? And, and Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, we try to optimize the patient to the best health possible so that uh, they, uh, there are no surprises on that day. There are many patients who have are, are on multiple medications, and we encourage the patients to bring their list of medications, or if possible, all the medications, uh, so that uh, we, we make sure that there are certain medications that need to be stopped, certain medications that need to be increased. Uh, so these are the things uh, that are done in the pre-op assessment clinic. Now. At uh, Upstate University Hospital, we have a beautifully functioning uh, uh, pre-op assessment clinic um, at 550 Harrison Street, where we see most of our patients who are going for an elective procedure. Interesting. Someone who has um, like sleep apnea, if mm-hmm. that comes out in the exam beforehand, does that affect anesthesia? Oh, yeah. Sleep apnea is a big thing. Um, and uh, so we encourage those patients who have sleep apnea, if they are using the CPAP machine, we tell them to bring the CPAP machine to the, uh, to the hospital. Uh, for the, It will be probably used uh, immediately after the surgery. And if they are going to stay in the hospital overnight, we would like them to use their CPAP machine. And not only that, um, sleep apnea has multiple effects on the heart, the lungs. It, um, so uh, we go through the whole checklist making sure that the sleep apnea does not really interfere with his anesthesia and surgical experience. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Assistant Professor of Anesthesiology, Dr. Srinivas Toda. Uh, Now, most patients are told that they have to stop eating and drinking several hours before surgery. Why, Why is that? Well, before an elective planned surgery, we always ask our patients to be starving. Now, even 30 cc's or 30 ml of stomach contents as they go to sleep, if that gets into the lungs, that's called lung aspiration. 30 cc's is not a whole lot. That's It's a very tiny amount. Okay. Even if that gets into the lungs, which can happen if they're not starving, that can give rise to severe complications like pneumonia and prolonged ICU stay. 
So we want the patients to be starving. Now, they can take clear fluids. Clear fluids means water or um, fruit juice without pulp. Um, they can be taken, ingested up to two hours before the uh, surgery. Okay. Um, solids, um, like so anything fatty meal, um, it's not supposed to be taken for at least eight hours before the surgery. Now, for infants, babies, we recommend that they can take breast milk up to four hours and non-human milk, six hours. Non-human milk is considered somewhat like solids because it solidifies oh, um, okay. in the stomach. And so we, to avoid the risk of aspiration, we always advise fasting um, for at least a few hours before the surgery. Now, we've recently had an orthopedic surgeon uh, who was on HealthLink on air who explained how smoking can greatly delay healing. Mm -hmm. um, does it also increase the risk of anesthesia-related problems? Absolutely. Smoking not only causes delayed wound healing, has uh, surgical problems, but it also increases the multiple other risks, lung problems. Um, it can increase the risk of pneumonia. Immediately after the surgery, the patient, uh, especially if they are having abdominal or surgeries on the thoracic cavity, they won't be moving their lungs too much because of, of, the, of the discomfort. And if they're smoking, there is a higher chance of them having secretions, and this does increase the risk of uh, um, lung complications uh, like infections and pneumonia. Also, it has multiple effects on their heart. It can increase the risk of heart attack, huh. angina. So we always suggest that they should stop smoking preferably at least a week before the surgery. If not a week, then at least try their best not to smoke on the day before the surgery and for at least a few weeks be after the surgery. Okay. Well, let's talk about the risks of anesthesia and whether are those risks greater in older people? Absolutely. Uh, as one grows older, the brain becomes a little bit more susceptible to the effects of anesthetics. Um, yes, one of the common complications is nausea and vomiting, which is more common in women, especially younger women. But as one grows older, there, uh, these anesthetics have, do have an effect on the aging brain. So sometimes um, the older people, they're left with post-operative delirium. Uh, after surgery, one can become a little bit more confused, problems remembering things or focusing on things and unaware of the surroundings. So this the delirium, is that uh, temporary? It's usually temporary. It can last for a few days, when up to a week. But okay. then there is another type called post-operative cognitive dysfunction. We call it POCD. This is more common in people who have underlying conditions like previous stroke, mild dementia, including mm -hmm. Alzheimer's, lung disease, congestive heart failure. And this can sometimes be permanent. And, um, and sometimes it can be debilitating. And okay. this is a much more serious condition. Are there things that... Um people can do, elderly people can do to help reduce the confusion after surgery? Absolutely. So we always ask family members to stay with the patient after the surgery or before the surgery. This helps them feel, uh, the patient feel a little bit more comfortable and less disoriented. We also encourage them to bring their glasses, their hearing aids, so that they can be used as soon as possible after the surgery. Now, in the recovery room, we do uh, sometimes encourage them to stay um, near a window um, this is helpful to gaze out and so that they can tell whether it is day and night, or day or night, sorry. And sometimes we do tell them to pack familiar objects like uh, um, a family photograph or a calendar into the bag so that the, uh, this does help them readjust to their surroundings after the procedure. Now, in terms of risks um, to anesthesia, I, I know that you go over like medications that the people are taking, but um, some people might not consider herbal and dietary supplements as 
medications and may mm-hmm. not mention those. Um, are, are they a problem for anesthesia? Absolutely, if, you're right. It's surprising that 50% of the Americans are on some sort of dietary supplements. Vitamins or something. Vitamins, ginkgo, ephedra, vitamin E. For example, ginkgo and ginger. Uh, Ginkgo is used for improving the memory but does increase the risk of bleeding. Ginger has some antiplatelet-like action, Mm. does increase the risk of bleeding. I'm not saying they're bad. They are absolutely good for your body, but we suggest that these be stopped for at least a couple of weeks before the surgery. Ephedra, vitamin E is commonly taken for slowing the aging process and for a number of reasons. It can also increase the risk of bleeding and cause blood pressure problems intraoperatively. So we suggest that those herbal supplements should be stopped for at least a couple of weeks. And all these are addressed um, in our pre-op assessment clinic at 550 Harrison Street. Wonderful. And then um, just, we we talked about older adults. What about children? Are there special considerations when a child is facing surgery? Absolutely. Now, having a surgery or a medical procedure can make anyone anxious. But when it comes to a child, it adds a whole new level of anxiety for the whole family, including the child. So uh, the child may have surgery in the hospital and spend the night in the hospital or may have a procedure in an outpatient surgery center and go home. Um, but the most important thing that we advise the patient, the parents is uh, they do play a very important role here. They need to be honest to their children and they need to be confident. Nothing suits a child more than and a confident well, the parent, parent. The parent may be a little nervous about it too. Oh yes, they are <laughs> nervous about it. But we give them enough information so that they know what to expect. And so the the children they should um, you know they should be explained that um, there is difference between home and then hospital. Uh, what to expect? And they sh- they should be informed that there might be a little pain. They might be a little sore after the surgery. They might have to stay in the hospital after the surgery. But the doctors, the nurses will. They're friendly people. They'll take good care of him or her. And um, as soon as he's fine, he'll be, he or she will be sent home. Neat. Well, thank you for this. This has been a good overview. I appreciate you being here. Thank you. My guest has been uh, Dr. Srinivas Toda, an assistant professor of anesthesiology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.